This podcast is brought to you by House of Macadamias. I love macadamia nuts. They are incredibly good for you. They're the healthiest nut on a pound for pound basis, but they've always been hard to find and frankly, very expensive. House of Macadamias changes all that by going directly to farmers in South Africa to take the best nuts directly from each harvest. They turn them into incredible products, chocolate dip macadamias, protein bars, you name it. They taste incredible. I live off these products on a day-to-day basis. I'm a huge fan. Go to houseofmacadamias.com backslash Noah, use the code NOAH20 and you won't be disappointed. Welcome to the Uncharted podcast. Uncharted is a community of some of the world's best entrepreneurs, founders, investors, creatives, and beyond. At our dinners and at our annual summit in New York, we have dialogues with people who are truly at the top of their game across every industry. This podcast is designed really to offer the world and the audience a peek into the magical conversations that happen behind closed doors at our events, and more importantly, a peek into the brains of people who are truly at the top of their game. My goal with every guest is that if you know them well, you'll hear them talk about something or say something they've really never said before, and if you've never heard of them, you'll know exactly what makes them such a badass by the time the episode is over. Welcome to Uncharted. We're glad you're here. John Barbados, welcome. It is fantastic to see you. You look amazing. I'm sorry that you're feeling a little bit of injury, but you, uh, I must admit that when I first, we first met at Uncharted in 2022 in the Hamptons. And when I first heard that you were coming and then when you intended a subsequent dinner, um, I meet a lot of cool people. You, I was very nervous because I, I, you are such a legend in so many ways and your name is so synonymous with such cool shit to be frank. And I knew very little about your story other than that you are an ultimate badass of the fashion world. And now having got to know you and considering your friend, you're just the coolest dude. You're the nicest guy. So this is very cool for me to sit here with you. Obviously you've attended a couple of dinners. We've gotten to know each other, but, um, I'm very happy you're here. So welcome. Well, well that's very nice of you to say, um, and I think you're pretty badass yourself. Wow. I think we can end the podcast right here. I'm good. I might just retire, actually. I, I mean that with all sincerity. I appreciate that. Um, many people know your name. Most people know your name. I think a decent amount of people know your story. But for the purposes of this podcast, I want to try to pull out some... You've done a lot of cool shit. More than I can even recount and way more than we can cover in this hour. But you're from Detroit. And unlike a lot of people who achieve success in their various pathways, you have become a fashion icon. It wasn't on a tee for you, right? You didn't grow up in a family that had this predetermined. You grew up in Detroit and your first job was working in a men's store. And then you graduated college and said, I'm going to do my own, right? Walk us through how you had, I guess, the audacity to think, hey, I'm in Detroit, but I'm going to do my own men's store. How'd that come about? (laughs) You know, when I was growing up in Detroit, I never thought about doing a men's store. Detroit was not a fashionable town at all. It was a blue-collar town, really. Um, And a music town, which was my real passion growing up in Detroit. You know, we had the best music in in the world between rock and roll, blues, jazz, Motown, gospel. It was all there, you know, and it was an amalgamation of a lot of it. So that was my real passion. Um... When I was probably in about eighth grade, I discovered when I wore a sweater to school one day that I got an amazing reaction from a number of girls. So for me, that, that set off, you know, uh, kind of something in my brain that said, 
you need to find a way to create a style for yourself. I, I, I probably didn't know what a style was other than what I saw on television, um, that type of thing. But I felt like I needed to, it, it would be an important part as I was very interested in girls at that age, beginning to become quite interested. Were you a popular kid? Um, popular enough, but I was on the quiet side. You needed I, a leg up. I definitely was on the quiet side, you know. I wasn't this, like, in-your-face, outgoing kid. Um, I, I, I played sports, um, but I wasn't like the quarterback of the football team. I was a baseball player. Um, so it kind of started then, and then I tried to figure out, like my parents really didn't have any money. We grew up in, in an extremely humble household. There was five kids and my parents, so seven of us, in eight or 900 square foot house with one little bathroom. So you can imagine every morning what that felt like fighting to get to that bathroom. And especially like on a Sunday when everybody was going for it at the same time to go to church, you know? Built character. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, so I, you know, I got absorbed in music at the same time because my one thing that transported me, like putting my headphones on, whether it was in my bedroom that I shared with two other brothers in a wow. small bedroom, or in the basement of my house that I would put my headphones on and listen to music, it somehow transported me someplace else. So I knew it, you know, when I was in my teens, you know, now I'm 13, 14 years old, that I need to get some kind of a job besides just mowing lawns and that type of thing, because I want to get clothes, because I want to look cool, and I want to get girls. And um, so it was either going to be in a music store, if I could find that, or it was going to be in a clothing store. And where I got the job was in a, in a clothing store. And um, it, I started in like the young men's department. I mean, I, and I wasn't a big kid for my age. I was actually at that time relatively small. And so I was in the young men's department and could still wear some of the young men's clothes, which were cheaper. Um, and so I started to really get into clothes and at the same time I got into photography and I started the beginnings of going to concerts and taking pictures because back then we didn't have any social media, there was no immediate gratification on any of it. You would see things in music magazines but it was months after those things were done. So I started taking pictures and paying attention to style with artist. And it wasn't that I wanted to be Keith Richards, but I loved his scarf, or I loved Jimi Hendrix's boots, or I loved whosoever jacket, whatever it was. And I, I, I thought at the same time, like, be kind of cool to create your own style, but not really even truly understanding what that was. So that was my beginnings in Detroit. I went to school in Ann Arbor. And um, I worked my way. I got that job in high school, working in a men's, men's and women's store, actually. I, that same company had stores, a couple of stores in Ann Arbor. And so I worked there and worked my way through school. Um, what did you study? I studied, well, I went into pre-med initially. 
You're laughing. I'm, la- I'm <laughs> laughing because I was going to make a joke that clearly that's exactly how it all worked out, right? Exactly. Dr. Barbados. Exactly. Um, I, went into, I went into pre-med initially, and I wasn't the most... Um, as a student, I, I, when I wanted to study, when I really had to cram and do it, I was great at it. But on a daily basis, I was a procrastinator. I wasn't really motivated. Um, but I loved the whole social part of school. Um, and part of the educational part I enjoyed as well. So I, you know, I, I was working my way through school. When I say working my way, like 35 hours minimum of a week and taking a full load of classes. And then during the seasons, playing baseball for, the, for university as well. I, um, when I graduated from, well, I'll, I'll make this, because the story's going to get too long. You oh, can I edit it. it. But I, um, I knew in my third year that I was not going to go into med school. I'm thinking, like, I got, like, four more years of school. <laughs> you made it three. It's not going to happen. This ain't it. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not that interested, you know. We're now into cadavers. It's no longer a... <laughs> A, 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 a frog it's not really my thing so much um you're like i want music and girls man yeah what is this? well yeah i wanted something different you know for sure and i um i i, I decided you know like i needed to uh, switch gears but then you're saying okay i got three years of a tremendous amount of science credits where's that gonna go how do i not throw all of that away so where I landed was education. Like I can take those science credits and use those to become a teacher. Even though I wasn't really driven, and it also shows you how you, your path can be very winding like a river, you know, and, and where you go with your career. Not everybody's very clear about it. Some kids know from the time they're very young, and some are still in their 50s and trying to figure it out, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but I, I went on to get my degree in education, still working in fashion in, in the stores all the way through. Were you developing an underlying deep passion for fashion, that rhyme that I didn't mean it to, were, along the way? Yeah, I was. I, I, I truly was. I, I was a, kind of a student. I became a student of it. Not necessarily because I thought that that was going to be my career, just because as most people that get obsessive with something, I was quite obsessive with music Hmm. and style. I never really thought about it as fashion as much as like style. Like my first like style icon was Steve McQueen. Hmm. You know, I just thought like, how does this guy like wear a white t-shirt in khaki pants and always looks so cool. Now, he's a good-looking guy. He's got great body, all those things. But it's also the way he carried himself. There was something very special about the way he just, you know, his aura around him. And, you know, so I followed all of that, you know, like the way people, I used to think about it. My dad said something to me when I was young about how bad my shoes looked. And he said, you know, the last thing people see when you walk out of a room is your shoes, the heels of your shoes. So think about that. And even though that was a minor thing, it made me think about how you enter a room and how you leave a room. And 
and the style part of it, which necessarily wasn't fashion. It was really partially character and, and how you present yourself. Um, but at the same time, my, my, my photographic um, kind of interest also spawned me taking a tremendous amount of pictures, mostly music, but also outside of music as well, and, and details and things. I used to hang out, out of a, outside of a store in downtown Detroit, which wasn't a great neighborhood in the, in the 70s at all. It was not a great neighborhood, but it was cool. And I hung out in front of this, um, um, this store called Henry the Hatter, and Henry the Hatter were like where all the Motown dudes went. They got their, you know, their big hats, their colorful outfits. And they even, I think, were getting shoes there. I, I noticed, I don't remember for sure if they were selling the shoes there, but I noticed for the first time like somebody walking in that store wearing a pair of shoes with glass heels on them, you know. So all of these things intrigued me. I... um but I graduated from I graduated from school. I taught for one year. What'd you teach? I was teaching uh, a chemistry lab. <laughs> wow. And um, but I'm in 22, 23 yeah. years old, and not that I didn't enjoy it, but it was three days a week. I was making no money. I was making. I was still working and selling clothes, making much more money selling suits than I was was doing that, um, and I decided that I should open up a men's store. And so I found someone else um, that was also financially, had, had the financial ability to do it, and their family also owned a, a, an upscale shopping center that was looking to open up a men's store. Hmm. So I did that. What was the deal you struck with them? What did that look like? It was a nothing deal. It was like, okay, you're going to make $25,000 a year. And they own it. And you're going to have, a, you're going to have phantom equity. Um, and you can get some bonuses, but you really don't really. Phantom equity at that time I thought was more than, sure. than what it really was. Yeah, for sure. So <laughs> That's you why were, they call it phantom. You were really working for them, running this store for them. Yeah. But it did yeah. let you a little bit put yourself on the map, right? It did, and it introduced me to a bunch of people. And most importantly, it introduced me to the people at Ralph Lauren. How'd that Be play out? How'd that because happen? Because back in the 80s, now we're in the 80s, um, Ralph Lauren was not a household name by any means, but in American design, which there really wasn't much design when you think about it back in the 80s. I mean, there were some women's designers that were bigger names that you would see because the the wife of a president was wearing it or someone was wearing it to an event or whatever, but men's fashion wasn't really. There really weren't men's wear designers in the earlier 80s of any consequence. The up-and-comers were like Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein, but they hadn't really gotten to the point where people really knew much of them. But I carried some of that product in our store, mixed with a lot of other product that was quite eclectic. And somebody at Ralph Lauren came to visit the store and was really taken back, I guess, by the eclecticness and the way I put things together, including myself, um, because I always wanted to have my own style. 
Um, again, I didn't know if I really knew it was my own style, but I, it was my own look or whatever it was. But you were following time. intuition, no? Yeah, yeah. And um, they ended up bringing the number two person in at Ralph Lauren and the company into... Um, Your store. To my store, making a special trip because... There was no direct way. They had to take a small little plane to get there from Detroit or from Chicago or whatever, where they were going from. Ralph Lauren was based in New York. And they came into my store and they said, if you ever want to do anything different, we have the place for you. And the real driver for that was that, A, you were moving product for them, right? So you were selling. And B... Was it really just that they were like, this guy, John Barbados, has a style and an aura to him, and, and we dig his vibe? Was, was that the real factor? I think it was a combination of probably a lot of things, like this guy can sell, not only himself, but his... This is when I started to have confidence in myself. Move in product. Move product. He has a special way of doing it and putting it together. He's created an aura in his environment there that's unique in the environments that we see in America at that time. Doesn't say it was the only one, but it was unique. So I was having a little bit of a disagreement with my partner on where I felt the business should go. And it was also a people thing within the company, not worth getting into. We were small, a little family-ish, and I felt sure. like there was some stuff going on that shouldn't be going on. And so... One of the guys from Ralph Lauren was by, and I said, you know, if that offer's still up of ever coming and meeting Ralph, I'd love to do that. And we talked to the president of the company. Like, the next day I get a call, like, we want to get a ticket together, get you out here. And they flew me to New York, mm. um, which I'd been a few times, and I'd been at the Ralph Lauren offices because I was buying product from them. But not like this. But not like this, but I met him and I went into his office and he's not a big man from a, 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 a height standpoint, but a presence standpoint, meeting him. He's I was a legend. Like, he's the guy. Oh my God. And even at that point in time, he was the beginnings of a legend, but in my mind, like this guy was like insane. And just looking around his office, like the way everything was done in all, all of their offices, um, and he was so charming with me. Hmm. And he spent a lot of time with me and wanted to really know about me and why I was wearing certain things and how come I put certain things together and where did you get that? And I told him it was vintage and he told me his passion for vintage. Wow. And, and I told him like it was my, one of my big passions, but I had to go to other cities to really get it because where I grew up in Michigan and Detroit there was vintage but it wasn't the way we think of it you know it's more workwear which he goes I love workwear I'm like yeah but that's one only one part of of style You're right? like, this is you Detroit know? yes yeah. Detroit yeah wow um so he hired you and so they offered me a job and it was in sales though it was in sales to head up um a region of the con country like 10 states and uh, moved me to Chicago. And I moved to Chicago, and within a year, um, they asked me to move to New York to become head of um, sales for the company. Is that because you were just crushing it for them? You know, in fairness, everybody was pretty much crushing it at that time at Ralph Lauren. Because the brand, because the so brand was The brand was just, I describe it like when I joined there, 
we had a spark. Within a year, it had ignited into a flame. Mm. When I moved to New York, we were taking it into the Dow Chemical Explosion. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Very well so, said. But they saw something, even though I was the youngest of that sales organization and group and that type of thing, they brought me there. And they also gave me merchandising for the company, which was very connected with the design and product team. How old are you at this point? I'm sorry. 27, I think. And is your mentality, you're crushing it at 27, right? Is your mentality at this time starting to seep into, I am on a fast track to be a big name designer myself, or are you just happy to be in the room? I wasn't thinking of being a designer at that point in time, but I was thinking... I could retire by the time I'm 40. That was what was on my mind. Sweaters and Be- girls and music. Because, <laughs> because I was thinking, like, this company is unbelievable. Um, I'm doing, I'm making more money than I ever thought I could make at that point in time of my life. Um, I have the opportunity with bonuses and everything else to drive it. I didn't really know how far I could go there. But within a very short period of time, they were elevating me. And then, you know, I'm now there three, four years, and out of the blue, I get a call from Calvin Klein. I'm, oh, sorry, I move into design. One day, I I start taking these evening classes at FIT, just pattern making, illustration, just because I wanted to be able to do more than just be a voice in the design process. Mm. And I know that Ralph, and he had told me many times that he never had any real training, but I felt like I wanted that, sure. you know, at least enough to feel more confident around and pr- make my presentations in a stronger way. Did they pay for you to go to school? They didn't know I was going to school because ah. uh, it was in the evening until Ralph asked me one day that he had heard and wanted to know what my what my why I was doing it and I said I want to get into design. Ah. So he approached um, you. Yeah. And that's how that happened. <laughs> and 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 I he said replace yourself with somebody as good or better and you can get into design. Wow. And I and I did and I and I but I went backwards financially doing sure. that, of course. Yeah, but it was a lateral. For sure. It was it was definitely not laterally financially, but, but career-wise, yeah, career-wise, I'd say it, it worked was, out. It was a good thing. So, and then I got this call from Calvin, and I had known someone who worked with me at Ralph Lauren, who was in, I think he was a group president at at Calvin, and he spoke to Calvin about me, and I I sat down and I met with Calvin, and it's another one like he by then Calvin was like you know a household name as what Ralph was. And I'm sitting in his office, and another super charming person, and very, very thoughtful in his questions, and and listened to everything. Like, wasn't bored with what I was saying. He was very into what, you know, he would ask me a question, and I could go off on a tangent, and he wanted to hear it all, you know. And he said, listen, I, I want to reinvent this company. I've gone through some amazing times, but then we licensed all this product. And we lost control over a lot of it. I want to buy all those. I'm buying all those licenses back, or shutting them down. And I want to launch, relaunch things here on my own. I want it to be not these other sub brands. I want it to be Calvin Klein. So Calvin Klein Collection for Men, which we don't do. I want you to help me launch a sub brand, which ended up being CK. Sure. Um, 
I want, I have an underwear brand that I think could be so big, but it's right now, it's doing almost no business. Wow. What could we do with that? So, how you, old are you at this point? I'm sorry. This is, this is super interesting. Um, 30. 30. So, 30 by 30, years. Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren, who granted at the time may not be as big names as they are now, but those are big names, have both taken a personal and specific liking to you to want to bet on you by the time you're 30. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. And the Calvin one for me was a little bit, you know, I had grown in confidence and I always tried to be a sponge, like with everything. I wanted to be in everything, even though when you're in these big house design, designers, you really are in categories. You're designing categories like, you're, oh, you're doing outerwear and jeans, let's say, or you're doing this and that. Unlike a brand like when I started my own brand where you're doing everything. But I wanted to be a sponge about all those other things. I wanted to be in the shoe meetings. I wanted to be in the sock meetings. I wanted to be in the shirt and time. I wanted to know about everything. So when I got to Calvin, although I didn't have intimate expertise in all of those areas, I knew... I knew enough to possibly be dangerous yep. in not a good way, but I also knew enough to know what I didn't know. And he said, listen, I want to take a shot on you. Like, I think you could, you can do this. I just listened to you, and I think you have the innate sense on how to get there and to build a team around you that will help you do it. Because I talked a lot about, not just me, about teams. And uh, and he gave me that ability to really kind of do what I wanted to do. It's not that he wasn't involved, but unlike Ralph, who was very deeply involved in everything, Kelvin, you know, really let his lead team people do 90% of it. And then he'd come in and tell you what he wants and change this, or I'm not digging this direction and go, you know, but it wasn't like a day-to-day kind of thing. Wow. And, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, launching the CK brand was like a monster thing. Was that like, your first thing? Well, my first thing was the, starting the Calvin Klein collection for men. But at the same time I was doing that, because they had never done an elevated brand, they had done it for women's. So that was the first thing. And we, you know, we, I think we won designer of the year the first year with that. So that was showing something was going on. And then at the same time I was working on that, we were talking about, I mean, at the time they would use a name like Diffusion, like doing a Diffusion brand. But I'm like, why don't we do something that is more accessible in terms of price point, but isn't necessarily a Diffusion brand that's, we're going after a different audience, a younger audience, a, a, a more street audience, a, a more uh, an audience for... 1992 or whatever the year was. Now we're in the 90s, you know? I'm sorry to interrupt you. You said that in the first year that you started there, the first thing you relaunched was the Calvin Klein for Men line, right? And you won Designer of the Year in your first year? Calvin won. Calvin Calvin won, but under, in many ways, your direction, right? That's incredible. I don't want to glance over that because I think that's important. I want to try to let the audience have a peek into how your brain works. So as you're going in and you started a Calvin Klein, you're saying, all right, this men's line is going to be my first project. 
you have a blank canvas. How are you thinking about that at that time, which is late 80s, early 90s, right? Uh, it's 90s. 90s. Now, 90s. How are you thinking through that, that project? First thing is you, you want to get into Calvin's head. So I want to dig back into everything he did, like every historical thing that he ever did that I have access to because it's not like today where I can find anything I want. Digitally today, I can find... You know, I mean, there wasn't records and videos of every single thing, but I, I dug into it, plus spending time with him and really digging deep into how he thinks and the things he loves and putting yourself in Calvin's shoes. I'll never be Calvin. I didn't want to be Calvin, but what I wanted to do would be his voice, would be his eyes and his voice and his handwriting for what he really wanted the brand to be. Whether I totally achieved that or not, I can't tell you, but I achieved it enough that he was happy and successful. And One designer of the year. Yeah. And, 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 and less about designer of the year, but I think that we were successful at retail. Because I've seen people win designer of the year. And, and they don't sell anything. They're not around any longer. Wow. Like five years later, they're not around any longer. Mm. They were of the moment. They were a one-trick pony. So, And then we launched CK and right out of the box that was like explosive like is that the underwear line well ck was everything from jeans wear to casual sports wear um but underwear was calvin klein underwear and that was next and that was all at the same time and that for me was the game changer in the whole company the fragrance was where he made his money was fragrance before that i mean prior to that it was in jeans but then that business had fallen off before i got there and that's why he wanted to take it back. And, but the fragrance was huge. Everything Calvin Klein did in fragrance was huge. And so that was his real moneymaker. His women's collection did well, but it was small. And CK just all of a sudden were in thousands of department store doors around the country where you know, we had been in very few at that time except for fragrance because everybody had kind of, he had pulled it back too. But the underwear thing was kind of, for me, the secret weapon because he talked to me about making it like the polo shirt. I didn't really understand that in a way because that meant like you got to do 40 colors, and I don't think that we're going to sell 40 colors of underwear. Right. But I did understand that you want it to be the, the piece that everybody wears. Ubiquitous. Yes. And so how do you do that? Like, Jockey does briefs and Haynes does briefs and all these other people do briefs and, you know, boxer shorts. Like, how do you make them so different? And through, you know, a bit of luck, a bit of crazy idea and good working with a good team, came up with something called the boxer brief. <laughs> and that, you know, is one of those items that we came up with and it changed not only Calvin Klein, but it changed the whole underwear business. Even to this day, it's, 100%. Cha it's changed the underwear business. Now, I didn't get royalties on that. I didn't get commission on that. But I, I, I'm proud of what that was and what it's, what that, what that's created in, 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 in the industry, and that it's a lasting thing. It's not something that was great for two years or four years, and it disappeared. It is the largest selling men's 
body product out there, you know? And yeah. it doesn't matter if it's Calvin or Jockey or Ralph Lauren or Hugo. Everybody They're does They're all using your they design. All, they yeah. all do that. A hundred percent. And they all put do their little tweaks on it or whatever. But, you know, we got Mark Wahlberg, which wasn't my idea. It was actually David Geffen's idea. To he was he came in and Ralph and uh, Calvin said you got to see what we're what we've got so we we brought David Geffen into the studio and we put it on a model in there and you know he and Calvin are just like wow it's insane this is crazy and David Geffen goes I have the guy that that will help sell this 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 thing and it's Mark Wahlberg Mark Wahlberg was I don't know seventeen at the time or something. Mm. And we, you know, we mixed it with Kate Moss and women's, and all of a sudden we had the most dynamic duel in the world. But, but, but the men's with Mark Wahlberg is really what changed it. It crossed over everything from straight to gay to whatever. It just you that's know. one of the most iconic print campaigns oh, yeah. of all time. Yeah, I mean, Calvin did a lot of them. He did uh, Brooke Shields. You know what? What? But nothing, that's the OG. Yeah, yeah that, that is the OG. Yeah, that's the one when you were out in the Hamptons and you looked up in the air and the plane was flying. It was back Marky with Mark the, with Marky Mark in the band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's just it is just a ridiculous. I want to make sure that the audience can have a second to process that. Aside from all the other things you've done in music and the the fact that you've invented the boxer brief is just it, it's like comically epic in a way that just, I mean I'm sure half the audience if not more is wearing freaking boxer briefs when they're listening to this. I wish you got royalties yeah, on that. Yeah, I, I do too. <laughs> but it also, you know, we also had a good team of people that worked on it cuz it always takes like to get the, you know, to really get the magic sauce. It really takes everybody on it. Um, and then the marketing, you know, the whole marketing of it, because without the marketing, maybe it would have been good, but maybe it wouldn't have been the most incredible thing ever, you know? Hmm. And um, so it's just, everywhere. It's... Yeah, just to move things forward a little bit later. Ralph Lauren poached you back, right? Yep. I think like five years, four and a half years later, you I changed a... the game at Calvin Klein. You put Calvin Klein on the map. You are now definitely a bigger name than you were. John Barbados means something in your community to the average consumer. No, John Barbados isn't a name yet, no. but in this world, but in, but in the industry, from yes, and and in in, in the internal industry, sure. and I had other people that were kind of chasing me, wanting me to start my own brand at that time, and mm. I was actually in the process of kind of setting up my own studio. And just to start to think about what I was going to do, whether I was going to do work for a lot of other people or I was going to create my own brand. It was funny. I was never like totally driven that I have to have my own brand or like I had a big ego about doing Interesting. that. But I, I got this call from a gentleman by the name of Peter Strom, who was Ralph's original partner. And uh, it was the president of his company. And he said to me, like, you know, you're the one person that left here that we still talk about. Like, how did we let him leave? And, uh, you know, Ralph's thinking about, um, you know, the future, both his own future and succession. And his kids really aren't into design. Doesn't mean they won't be involved in the company. They were younger at the time, but they don't really, they don't really have the... They're not, that's not where they're leaning. And, and Ralph would really love to meet with you about coming back. And 
I came back and you know I sat down in his in his office and it was like coming home. Hmm. You know, it was really like I was away in. I don't know. I, I traveled the world for five years, and I came back, and he was in a different building. Because when we when I got to know him, and when we all got together, we were on a brownstone on Forty West Fifty Fifth Street, and every office, every studio was an apartment in there. We had all the apartments, but one in this brownstone. And when we came back, we were on Madison Avenue in a high rise, but in the upper floors. But it looked like the mansion on Madison Avenue. It was like, no way could you believe that you built something like this in a high rise, like, you know, like the mahogany staircases and everything in there. But I sat in his office and just the grin on his face when I sat down, the smile, the the warmth and, you know, I just I couldn't say no. And I and I came back and, you know. That was really that was really it. I, I, I thought I was going to sail into the sunset there. I felt like I'm home, and he offered me to be head of men's design there. And It's a big job. Yeah, and the, the biggest in the world in terms of a, a fashion design company because there's no there's, – I don't even know to this day if there's any bigger men's brand out there, design brand out there. And um, But also a place that you felt good about it, and I, and I knew – like I knew it, it was part of my, it was part of my DNA as well, and it wasn't necessarily my personal look. I never looked like that guy in the polo store, never, and maybe was a little bit odd in that regard, but also always mixed my vintage with my pieces of Ralph Lauren and that type of thing. But I knew how to do Ralph, and I knew, I knew how to lead a team sure. and that kind of thing. So wow. Um, so you're back at Ralph Lauren, and you stayed there for five more five years. Five more yeah. years. You told you said a quote or told a story in another podcast, and I wish I remembered which one so I could give the host credit because you did a great job. But I remember the quote saying something like, "When you when you decided you were ready to leave and do your own thing, you went into Ralph's office and said, I want to do my own thing.' And he said, "If you really feel like you have something new to say." go and I'll support you. Otherwise, yeah. you can do whatever you want here for the rest of your life and write your own check. Boy, you, with no notes, you really have it almost word for word. So I'll, I'll take but, it. But the, the precursor to that was I, I had this epiphany like on a Sunday in December of 1999, I think it was, um, walking down the streets of New York City, kind of walking in and out of some stores at holiday time, just seeing what was going on. And I had this epiphany. And the epiphany was, wow, what a time to do something different. Menswear's really moved along, but there's so much that looks the same right now that I have this idea. I've always had this idea in the back of my mind, not necessarily that I was going to do a brand, but of a different look. And... Um, I came home that night and I told my ex-wife um, <laughs> that I was going to leave Ralph Lauren, the best job possible. I can sail into the sunset. We just went public. Mm. I'm going to walk away from all of that and I'm going to start my own company. And she thought it was crazy, but I, um, the next morning I'm like, I'm going to call this guy who has been chasing me for the last five years, since I was at Calvin, have been chasing me, whenever you're ready, I'm here, 
I want I want to support you to do your who own. Is bread. It? is he an investor? Like he what, who was, was this guy? A, he was a chairman of another big company, uh, um, um, American sportswear brand. So he's an apparel guy, but not fashion. And he basically says, "I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll fund it. You design it. Let's make something together. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. Yep. Got it. So I walked into my office at Ralph that Monday morning, and it was a time when. I didn't use a cell phone for everything. I think I don't even know if I had one yet. Sure. I think I might have just gotten one. But on my phone was a little red light. And that was your message light. And I listened to the message and it had come in that morning. I've I was there, it was like eight o'clock. I'd come in at like seven twenty that morning. And it was from this guy's name was Harvey, and it was like, hey, John, it's Harvey. Just thinking about you over the weekend. I'm still here for you. Wow. Anytime you're ready to do it, I'm ready to go. There's your sign. So I call Harvey back, and I say, I know you're not going to believe that I was really going to call you today, but I really was thinking about you, and wow. you were at the top of my list. And I met with him, and that week, within that week, we kind of put it together, you know? Um did you know it was going to be called John Barbados? No, I didn't at all. What was and the original idea? I, I, I didn't have a name because I didn't like my name. I didn't think it was right really? for some reason. I wow. Didn't, I didn't know. I just didn't think it was right. And so I started putting lists together of like every interesting name that I could um, come up with and then running it by friends and then looking at it to be if it, see if it was trademarkable, you know, registerable. And... Everything either had a problem or somebody had some kind of issue with it, either like this, these are the reasons why. So I'm, I'm deep into designing. I'm way down to it. And now all of a sudden everybody's like, if you don't have labels by 60 days from now, whatever it is, you're not going to be ready to launch this thing in January on the runway and to show stores because, you know, I'm selling wholesale and all that at the time. And um, everybody kept saying to me at that time, why don't you just call it John Varvatos? It's a great name. And I'm like, I don't know. And so I started working with a friend of mine just looking at different fonts. And um, another friend of mine in Seattle looked at what we were working on, and he just said, can I just take one shot at it? And he this did is a the, branding guy? It's like a design guy? Yeah, branding guy. And he just did actually more of a more architectural. Mm. They did branding, but they had worked on my they were the ones that had um, worked with me on my design of my studio. Sure. And um, he just did one simple thing. It was just a simple font, all lowercase. And it was it was the type of font, and I looked at it, and the way it was spaced and everything, and I'm like, it's it. I love it. I even love the way my name looks and everything. Wow. And I'm like, okay, we got to get to, we got to get start weaving, we got to do trials, we got to get it ready, and that was that. So. And do you remember what the first, like, what did it take to actually get John Barbados launched? Like, you did runway season. Were you a big brand immediately? Did this guy put a lot of money in? Like, what did that look like? So um, the brand that originally was behind me financially was a brand called Nautica, which oh, is of kind course. of an American brand. Yeah. And But the guy who was the chairman, who was Harvey Sanders, who was the real believer in it, the guy that was the um, founder of Nautica but did not own the controlling interest, he wasn't that excited that somebody else was coming into the house and that 
was going to be doing a brand so much more elevated in price point. Just freaking cooler. Excuse my French. Yeah, uh, but a different elevation, you know, spending money on runway shows cooler. and all that. Yeah, whatever. Badass. Sorry. <laughs> and, I got to pump um, your tires. So we, you know, we, in December, we were going to launch on the runway at the end of January. In December... I decided that I needed to preview with a couple of key people because I didn't want to get to end of January and then all of a sudden have Barney's come in and say, either we don't like it or we like it, but we just don't have a lot of money here for you. I really needed them to plan for it. So I called like Barney's, head of Barney's, head of Bergdorf Goodman. They knew my name but didn't know me. Head of... um, Neiman Marcus, and uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. Those were the biggest stores that I thought could elevate what I was doing. Um, I brought them all in. I didn't have my full collection, but plenty enough to show them what the look was. And they were all like, it was an overwhelming, like I got emotional, mm-hmm. like had to kind of keep my composure because it was kind of an emotional meeting with every one of them. And they loved it. They loved it. Like Barney wow. said... We want to give you 2,000 square feet on our in our wow. store, which was bigger than almost at any shop. From the in first designs you showed the first, them, from the first, and it, it was enough to show that they could fill a whole shop. Sure. What was it and though? That what did they love so much? They loved that it was this new American brand that doesn't didn't look like anything at the time. Now, of course, over time I evolved too, but didn't look like anything. They felt like everything from the look to the price point to the value to the quality. You know, to the fibers, the fabrics, the leathers, everything was was special and different. Mm. And it made a lot of sense to them. And then the guy who was head of Burdorf Goodman at the time, he came in and he wanted, but they had one store, he wanted an exclusive. And I said, I definitely want to sell you. He said, I'll give you a shop. And I said, but I can't do an exclusive. I, you know, I have to support this company. And sure. so on and so forth. So it was that great. And then... Women's Wear Daily came up and did a um, a feature on me back in December, so a month and a half or a month or so before I I launched and um, officially launched on the runway, and I was on the cover with like a four-page spread inside, and I remember that cover so much because it said, Out of the Shadows, which wow. meant like all of a sudden, you know. You've and, arrived. Yeah, and it really told this whole story about how that all of a sudden there was a new voice in American menswear at that time. Wow. There's a lot of voices that have come since, but at that point in time. You're the guy. And um, I launched on the runway, and right out of the box, we just, it was really working, you know, wow. everywhere. Every, we were selling everywhere. We were, you know, the showroom was always busy. And my partner, who we never thought about doing our own store initially it was you know they were in the wholesale business like a lot of american brands were back then not a lot of american brands in fact even even when i joined uh, ralph lauren in 1990 back no i'm sorry like in the 80s my first time they didn't own one of their own stores so it wasn't a big thing people would do shopping shops in department stores but most people didn't do vertical retail my partner, when they saw the response and they saw that we were, no matter 
who we, who was buying it as big as our shop was in Barney's we were never going to present it the same way we would do it ourselves sure the way our showroom looked and it's like let's go find a store so I found a store in Soho on Mercer Street next to the uh, Mercer Hotel at the, at the time and and that was the beginning of it that was the beginning of John Barbados and so it's immediately successful basically you have an emotional moment the barney's buyers neiman markets etc say basically you did it right the thing that you probably at some point said this is the goal and vision for me even if it was later in life you've achieved this thing you have your own store in zoho rocket ship growth and barbados essentially takes off Mm -hmm. right and over the next 10 plus 15 plus years your brand becomes ubiquitous with American fashion, this more edgy rocker look that's influenced in many ways by your music background. And then you start to do other badass stuff while you're running John Barbados, right? A Chrysler car, Converse shoes. Did you do a record label? Did I get that right? I still have that. You still yeah. have that right. Did, and Zach Brown Band, you signed them? Or yeah, he was my first, first artist I signed. Zach yeah. Brown. So did you? is it safe to say you discovered Zach Brown Band? No, Zach was already big. He had already had a multi-platinum sales out there. But when I when Zach actually discovered me, so I knew of Zach Brown um, as an artist, of course. I'm because, a big fan of his, by the way. He's amazing. Right. So I knew of him, but I never thought about him for my label. Number one, he was too big. Number one, what I was doing was more rock. That were my were my where I felt like there could be a, a niche in the market because everything had pretty much moved to pop. Sure. Hip hop. What year are we in when you started? We're 2000 when I started the label. I think 2014 or okay. something like that. Yeah, 15. Sure. So Zach reaches out to me through somebody in my West Hollywood store saying, I really want to talk to John. He goes, he calls me, says, uh, You know, I read the article in Billboard and Rolling Stone about you starting this label with Universal, Republic, and. Um, I'd really love to talk to you about it. I love I love what you do, but I love how you market, how you how you tell your stories, and that's what I want to do. So Zach liked your vibe really, the same way that the original people at Ralph Wren liked your vibe. The the reason Calvin Klein liked your vibe. You just had you had this aura that people seem Diff- to gravitate towards. Maybe maybe in different ways, but something there. There's always some little, as I say, maybe I was lucky that there was some little magic dust along the way. There's with, an aura, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and so I went down to Atlanta to Zach's house and spent a couple days with him and. You know, with his kids and his wife and him, just him in his man cave and threw axes at a big wheel that was turning. As one does with Zach Brown. Yeah, exactly. You know, and Chinese throwing whatever those things are. Naturally, yeah. But we talked a lot about music and and branding and, and, and taking his brand to a different level. And he was hell bent on, in his mind, being more of a, I will say, pop star than a country star. I think he felt like he was, he was um, kind of confined because of the industry to some degree, in in in, in pigeonholed to be this country guy because I think his first big hit was called Chicken Fried, of course, which is Put definitely not a rock kind of sound. That's a that's song. a country song. Yeah, and and so. He wanted to break out and, and do more. Plus, he would see, you know, the Taylor Swifts who broke out big and other artists. So 
I said to him, listen, I don't know what I can do there in terms of that. I can try to help guide you. The music will speak for it, for sure. But I want to make sure whatever we do, that we protect what you built. It's, you know, expanding and spreading your wings out is great, but don't give up. Don't give it up. Like, just expand it. Like Taylor Swift, she was able to, yes, she lost some of her country fans, but she still kept enough of them and built a bigger audience. So let's figure that out. So one of the things that we ended up doing is one of my good friends was Chris Cornell uh, from Soundgarden and who, you know, we lost a few years ago, a good, very good friend. Um, and Zach wrote this song called Heavy as the Head. Incredible song. And it was very much a very much Soundgarden, Chris Cornell kind of sound. That's a hard song. rock song for yeah. those in the audience who don't but know. But if you, and you're a, you're a big Zach fan, you know that if you go to a show, you could be hearing Metallica Absolutely. song. You could be hearing Queen. You Absolutely. could be hearing Aerosmith. You He's could, done more pop stuff too. I mean, yeah. there was an album, I forget which year it came out, probably that was more pop for yeah. Zach Brown, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So the interesting thing about that was is that we did that one song it went number one in the rock charts, and at the same time, with a completely different song, he had a number one in country. Wow. So first time I think anybody's ever had two number ones at the same time with two different songs and two different genres. Wow. I mean, Zach is somebody who has unequivocally transcended genres in a way that I, I, there's, I can name multiple people who will say, I hate country, but I like Zach Brown band. And that's very impressive. And watching his, you know, I never was at a Zach Brown show ever before I had him on my label. And the first show that I went to, I think was at Fenway Park. So we didn't start small and it was sold out for three nights at Fenway. What year is this? Uh, 2015. I was I think. at that show. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. And you know, and just watching the crowd, which was overall a pretty cool crowd, like a lot of cool-looking girls, absolutely with cowboy hats and cowboy boots, but super cool. I went with my friends from. I was in college at the time, and we all went. Yeah, from BU. And it was an interesting crowd and a very diverse crowd. And I took and I invited other friends of mine who weren't as hip to what he was doing and because of the, the diversity in his musical taste and talent and his band's talent everybody was blown away and one of those shows i don't know if it was that tour or the next tour we had uh steven tyler from aerosmith also play with wow. them and kurt hammett from Aero, uh, from uh, metallica play with them and it was like kind of crazy ama amazing things and Going around that tour to some of the big stadiums that we did was crazy, and um, yeah, that was that. And and I thought it was, I thought I made it in the music industry, but that was all downhill after that. Mm. <laughs> Not really. Not but, really. But you're starting with a superstar instead uh, of huge. like starting a label with up and comers. Yeah. And, Is you know, he still on your label? No, no. He he left and won't get into it. it had nothing to sure. do with me. It was really, he really didn't want to be part of like he thought he was going to be part of the small label, but he really kind of wanted the big label support. Yeah. And at the same time, you're universal. It's complicated. Yeah, fair enough. Whatever. Sure. Nothing they didn't do for sure. Um, but we're still close. Yeah. 
And um, but you know I've continued on with my label with a number of other great younger artists, and I love that, and I love you know help building those artists as well. What type of music's exciting to you right now? A lot of music is exciting to me right now. From I mean, there's artists that I have on my label that are rock for sure. Different, you know, rock is broken out into different sure. genres. Um, Feel free to name them in case the audience knows. Yeah, if you want. I mean, I have a we have a young kid out of Seattle. His name's Aaron Jones, and Aaron is uh, an African American rocker, killer like in the Hendrix world, very melodic, amazing voice, amazing guitar player, all black rock band. I don't know another one That's on awesome. the planet today. Maybe awesome. it was Living Color at one time back in the '80s, I guess, early '90s. Um, and he's been super successful already. We have a great band called Bad Flower, who we've had a number of years, been with me now for about five or six years, a number of big successes with them. Um, so that's just a couple right off right off the bat that we have. And, and uh, we have The Struts, mm. which are a band that I brought over in 2015 from the UK that are good friends of mine that... I saw in the UK and met there and brought them to the US. They signed with another label at the at the time, but are now with us with John Varvatos Big Machine as our label. And um, uh, my partner Scott Borchetta is one of the most talented and powerful guys in the music industry. He has the largest independent music label in the world called Big Machine Records mm-hmm. and probably the biggest country um, label in the world as well. Wow, um, and we also have a really killer band called Starcrawler. They're all they're around twenty years old, female singer, kind of game changing shows. Are it's like not only are they fun, but they also bring a little danger back into rock and roll. Not that anybody's hurting themselves, but danger in a way that you know we when we were all growing up the. You know, I don't care if it was the Stones, or you're younger than I am, but it was Stones or Led Zeppelin or The Who or whatever, whatever it was in those periods. Iggy Pop, you felt like there was a little danger, like things could get crazy. Mm. You know, it's not, you know, in recent years, just people sitting in their seats, you know? Mm. Or, or there was a period when punk was really, really big, and there was mosh, mosh pits and that, and... Um, you that, know, and then there's guys that I've been following since they were unknown kind of things that I've been supporting, like Machine Gun Kelly, who's like one of the biggest artists in the world, of course, yeah. who just won an AMA and is up for a Grammy and had an album of the year. And people kept saying, you can't do rock because you're, you're, you're a rap and he, you're a rapper. And he's been able to do both. And I'm so proud of him. It's unbelievable. And he's yeah. not on my label, but I'm so proud of him. That's amazing. Yeah. Very, very cool. I want to get a little bit into um, how your career has evolved, music and aside. Um, I didn't know this until we became friendly, but you're no longer involved directly in John Barbados anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, as much as you're comfortable sharing, how did that play out in terms of when you stepped away from them? And I want to get into OTD as well, because it's sure. very exciting. So, um You know, I had my company, John Varvatos. I founded it in 2000. We launched in fall 2000. I left it in the summer of uh, 2020. So I was with her for 20-plus years. And um, I was a partner with a private equity firm. During um, COVID, everything shut. You know, March of 2000. 
2020, is it? 2020, sure. everything shut. Of course. Everything retail, every restaurant, everything shut. I mean, liquor stores were open because they could deliver and that. We'll talk about and your tequila needed, as well, yeah. People needed booze to get through it. But, um, you know, any other store was closed for at least six months. And, and my partners um, felt like um, that the company should go through a reorganization or Chapter 11 filing because we were going to run out of cash like a lot of people trying to support everything that we do, especially continuing to have to pay rents and all of that. And that's as far as I'll really take the sure. story. But in August, so that was in, in, in March. I guess we, we filed it sometime in later April of and in March, through a lot of court dates and everything else, um, they ended up winning something called a credit bid. And unless you're really into like bankruptcy and that, it's a term that most people never have heard of. Sure. But they won the credit bid on it. And I decided that it wasn't the right thing for me to go forward with for many reasons. Um, Life's too short. I learned a lot during COVID about that, and I'll leave it at that. And you very clearly have more, a lot more to say because there's a new brand that you're behind called OTD, and I want to make sure everyone in the audience and everyone who hears this knows more about that because it's pretty yeah. epic, to be frank. Yeah. I want to hear the story and how we can be supportive of OTD. Yeah, and, and John Varvatos is still a brand that's out there. It's still my namesake, and it's my family name. I want it to be successful. I have no hard feelings. John, I mean, to like be that. clear, John Barbados, the brand could go away tomorrow, and the name John Barbados will live on for a very long time, just based on how big that's become. So, but I, I of course, it's still out there. It's still iconic. But so, let's August talk about OTD. Of, August of uh, 2020, I decide I'm going to pull up stakes, which is a hard thing to do because all my equity is wiped out after 20 years plus years. My name is no longer my name. I mean, I still have my name for a lot of things, but not for fashion, okay? And, um, you know, so it's a hard thing to kind of... Wrap you know, your brain around. Wrap your brain around. But I did, and I'm, I'm, my wheels are always turning. So I, I started thinking, like, you know, what's everything's changed so much during COVID, and I have no idea where the hell the word, world's going to go now. But I started just playing around because I didn't want to start to get myself, like in a place where I'm down about anything. I wanted to stay positive and up. And, mm. and so I started just working. We were up, I have a house upstate a few hours north of the city on a lake up there. And I started just playing around, like sketching and and working in a different way than I, I, I just doing research and just, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I made it that every day I spent at least four or five, I'd get up in the morning and I'd kayak Hmm. Something I didn't do all the time, but I had time to do now, you know? And I like kayaking. And then I'd come home and I'd work four or five hours minimum on new business strategy. What a new brand could be. Why Why does anybody need a new brand? What's a new voice? What's What would a new voice be? What would the DNA be that creates this new voice, you know? And so I started pulling ideas together, and um, I guess a, within a few weeks, I felt like I have this, you know, large um, lower level at my house. I guess it, it really would be a basement, but because the ceilings are so high in the way it's done, you don't feel like you're in a basement. But I took one like 30-foot wall, 
And I just kept covering it with photographs and sketches. And, you know, I had all these old notebooks, too, that I used to do when I was first starting out designing, where I would do these little sketches, thumbnail sketches. And I used to take Polaroids back then when I was traveling and put those in the notebook so I'd capture things in the moment. Um, And I just started kind of working back, like thinking how I used to work. And um, I would say between three or four weeks, I felt like I really had something interesting. And I brought my wife downstairs. She had probably peeked at it, but I didn't really get into it. And she's like, "I, I, I don't even know how you could get here, like in this period of time, like where it's going. And I'm like, I don't know where I am, but I want to bounce it off some other people. So a couple of the other senior people who had been working with me and decided not to move forward either with the company. When I resigned, they um, they also left as well, not knowing what they were going to do. They had been interviewing. I said, why don't you come up to the lake house? And they'd never been up there and spend a day if you want to spend a weekend, whatever. And I, I want to show you something, but I just want to hang with you guys, you know. So we spent the better part of the first day hanging, going out of my boat, drinking, smoking, whatever we were doing, <laughs> and just having a great time, you yeah, know. And the creative juices flowing. Yeah, exactly. And um, we, um, I took him at the end of that afternoon, I took him downstairs and said, I just want to show you something like down in my... Uh, my man cave down here, because also my music room, for sure, sure, where I have all my music equipment and guitars and all that kind of stuff. And um, everybody was excited. You know, it was a handful of people. When I say everybody, three people were super excited. Yeah, but that's an important three people. Yeah, it was. And uh, they had a lot of questions, though, about, like, how deep did I want to go into where we were before? And I'm like, it's not inspiring for me to just do JV2. doesn't mean that, you know, no matter what, I'm still John Varvatos, that there's got to be some of your DNA or soul or, you know, breadcrumbs that are still there, you know, in the mix. But that's not the look that I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to bring rock and roll into it. doesn't mean that I don't love rock and roll. doesn't mean that I don't love music. But what I started talking to them about was creating a brand that was based in pop culture. And when I think of pop culture, of course, I think about music, but music is much broader. So it could be everything from pop music to Zach Brown Band to rock and roll to hip hop to whatever. Things that are intriguing to me. Movies. I mean, what's bigger than pop culture, than movies and television? Um, Sports. I mean, I go to a basketball game today. It's a better runway show sitting on the floor there whenever I get invited for someone to say, you want to sit on the floor? Of course, yes. It's a better runway show than going to a runway show. I'm looking at these people coming by me and this posse of six people, and I'm like, quarter of a million dollars worth of handbags and clothes on that group like there. I love what's going on The NBA here. moves NBA. culture in it's an NBA. unbelievable way, more than any other sports league. So all of these things were going through my mind when I, because I had pictures of like the NBA and sports and, which is something I never had in my John Varvatos right. imagery. Very rock. And yeah. And I, and I, and, and even, my, even John Varvatos didn't start out at rock. It kind of evolved over time where, 
even though my roots were there, I kind of got pulled into it by more artists all the time. But here I thought, like, why don't I take, you know, kind of, you know, sophisticated sportswear and mix it with athleticism and, you know, and, and really make it, you know, a, a more sophisticated street, even though I'm not a street guy necessarily. But the, I always thought from the time I was young that the coolest things happen on the street. So it doesn't mean... What I'm talking about street today where Supreme started or the next sneaker started. But even when I was in college or you were in college, the cool things were happening watching people walking around, not in a magazine. It was really how someone put themselves together like Absolutely. that, you know. So, you know, that's really where it all started talking about that, even contemporary art, like how that has such an effect on pop culture today and and so many people are so engaged in in contemporary art in in many many ways and so i started thinking about storytelling because my whole life i always thought about great stories whether they were all real or they were ones that you kind of created in a way to, to as as great writers do to kind of you know get your message across the real ones are always the best right but I started thinking about how do we create this brand that's built in storytelling and pop culture. So great things. So the name of the brand is On This Day or OTD. We really go by OTD because it's easy and it's got a great logo. But it stands for On This Day. And On This Day came about to me when I was in the same process way back in the John Varvatos days of trying to figure out, like, what am I going to call this brand? But now I got partners working with me, and I'm throwing out all these names, and they didn't have that many ideas. I keep throwing out all these names, and certain things we loved were like, okay, we're going to have an issue in China. They've registered every word in the human, you know, <laughs> language. And, you know, and so um, I had in my notes on my phone, you know, you have your note um uh, in yeah, the notes app, yeah. In your notes app, and I put a lot of stuff in my notes app. You know, some of it I don't even know it's there anymore. It's been in there so long, and I started scrolling through my notes app, and then I saw a, a, a category that I had in there that said brand names, and the first one in there was on this day, and it came to me like four years before that. But I never, never thought about it for a month or so while I was going through this whole process, maybe a few months. When I saw things popping up in my phone of a picture of me and my family on vacation or, you know, friends on a boat or whatever it is, somehow those algorithms on Instagram only pick up things with people. They're not picking up a tire or a television set or a radio, or a baseball mitt. They're always picking up people. It was an interesting thing. And so I looked at that and said, whoever thought of that, they thought about creating these moments that they would flash on your phone that were you celebrating great moments in time. At least that's what I thought they were trying to say. Maybe that's not what they were. I think it's pretty accurate. And they never trademarked it. So they just called it on this day, and the huh. shit would pop up, you know? And so I immediately went out to see if anybody had ever trademarked it, and no. 
there were a few people, a few th- sites that were using it, historical sites. Sure. They had never, which is fine. I've sure. got no issues with that kind of thing. I have no interest in also celebrating like when the you know when Pearl Harbor were, was bombed or anything like that. My yeah. whole thing of celebrating great moments are pop culture moments when something amazing is either happening today or happened in time. Wow. Um, and one of the questions when I it was a funny when I was meeting with some of the top people at Universal Music talking about it, and they said, "Well, talk about Drake. Like if you were going to work with Drake." And I said, well, that would be amazing if I was, but, you know, you put me on the spot, but okay, I'm guessing the time, but in 2006, Drake dropped his first mixtape on November 16th, on this day, November 16th, I'm just making this up right now, Drake dropped his first mixtape. Within 30 days, his song went number one, whether it was 30 days, 90 days, whatever it was. And that was the beginning. We're celebrating it today with a special edition this or a, a, a colored press vinyl of, the, of that, of that mixtape, whatever it is, or a limited edition item here. But we're celebrating that great moment in time. So it could be for many different things. And that was just one small example that I used at the time that made me think about great moments in sports or a great, a big movie that was coming out last year, that came out last year, came to me, but it was too late because of the supply chain issues that we deal with today. They came out with me and said, we'd love for you to do something with our original movie that launched in 2002, and that would be launching on December 7th, 2002, the X, whatever it was, launched their first premiered in theaters and became the biggest movie of the year we're launching the x whatever this december and we're celebrating it you know and we're and we're helping them celebrate those kind of things with something limited something special something on social you know taking it to a different place doing all the windows of my stores all about that like i'm doing a I'm doing a celebration with the Jimi Hendrix family. I've been friendly with them for many years. Wow. Never knowing Jimmy, but knowing his sister. And we're doing a, this early spring, we're doing a celebration of Jimmy. And it's, you know, we're going to do a takeover of the windows of all my stores and my West Hollywood stores, a hundred plus feet of frontage on Sunset Boulevard. That's all going to be Jimi Hendrix, you know. That's powerful. Yeah. And so there's things that you can do like that, that are fun, that, that add value not only to my brand, but also add value to the people that you that you work with as well. Sure. So I this, don't know if any of that makes any it sense. It makes but. it makes perfect sense. This is a brand that's built on collabs. It was been, it's been it's going to be continue to be built on collabs. It's been built on a lot of very um, logical but nuanced experiences from your life around pop culture and fashion. And I think the the anecdote about the thing on your iPhone that we've all seen of like on this day and now it's the John Barbados. 2.0 brand. It's not JV 2.0, but it's it's very powerful. Um, Are we okay on time? Ish, ish. All right, cool. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap. We're over. We'll wrap up quickly. <laughs> I could talk to you forever, man. To be honest with you. So, I, who are some of the dream collabs? Because I think this audience might be able to. I'm sure you don't need any help, but who who would be a dream? Um. Well, I mean, there's there's people in the NBA for sure that um, that I I I really I I don't want to turn one off or the other, but I definitely 
would like to deal with a, a few of the top, especially the ones that are also give back. Sure. You know, there's a couple there that it's not just about them and their royalties, but they also really, really love to give back in, in what, a lot of what they do. Um, that would be like a real knockout for me. And, and, I, and I like the idea of, and you know, the collab thing is only part of it, honestly. Doing great product is the number one thing that people love because you can just stick names on a collab. Sure. But doing but doing products that um, that I'll use the name okay that Steph Curry doing products that Steph Curry loves loves to wear and is proud of and really wants to get behind because it really represent who he is as well and not just oh I did this thing with OTD. And they gave me a royalty, and it was it was fun. But it's something that he it's a real collaboration. Sure, it's things that are important to him, like working with Janie Hendrix. It's things that are important to him, like when I started to work with her. I said, I don't want to do Jimmy. I've, I've worked with him a number of times over the year. I don't want to do Jimmy Hendrix, nineteen sixty seven. I want to think about what's Jimmy wearing in two thousand twenty three. Mm. What would he be wearing, and what would he think is cool? Okay, he's not wearing that military with all the brocade stuff. That's not happening right now. So what's he wearing? And 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 she got excited that we wanted to still make it Jimmy, but find a new a new way to do it. So that's one thing. Um, and um, so Steph Curry. So if anyone here is listening, assuming Steph Curry is not tied up with Under Armour to do fashion, let's get John Barbados and we'll Steph Curry together. We'll work with Under Armour as well on that. I mean, for sure, we love Under Armour. Audience Uncharted. <laughs> let's make it happen for Mr. Barbados. All right. We, I think, yeah. Let's work on that. So you know, and there's a number of music artists that um, that I, of course I'd like to um, I'd like to work, but I think it's they're all contemporary with me right now, and not just to be cool because they're contemporary, but and they definitely have to be female, because when I think about, it was interesting about, I think it was around 2017 I did something with my John Varvados brand, and I I covered the entire front and it's a multi-story building of the old CBGBs, covered completely covered it for a week. And that you couldn't get into it. And it was like spray painted in huge letters, like three stories tall that said, rock is dead. And my message there was, and then we, we, we pulled that down and it said, long live rock. But it wasn't about the music. It was about what, how people look at life today and use their voices. And who are the real heroes today? Who are the real rebels? Like, where's the Steve Jobs? Like, the real rebels in the music industry, for sure, are all these young women. It's Miley and all these people like that that use their voice. They're not afraid to say, do anything. They're not worried about what the record company thinks. They want to do all the things today that really represent them and create change. And for me, that's why I'm so intrigued by, and I talked about that back then, um, being a men's only brand that I felt like the real rebels at that time in the music industry doesn't mean that there aren't guys, but the biggest change has been on how women are now the biggest voice in the music industry. I just I did a documentary, because I also do some documentaries called Women Who Rock, it's a four-part series that's on epics right now. And we interviewed a lot of people. And when they talk about the ones that were around in the 70s, talk about that period of time, 
It was a men's club. It's no longer a men's club because the women today don't allow it to be a men's club in the music industry. Mm-hmm. So I love that part of it, and I want to be a part of like helping push that voice out there. Wow. Should we wrap? Yes. Uh, I think it would be good if we could wrap similar to how we did like that game. But like, I think he's talking, I mean, uh, great conversation. Um, I think it'd be great if we can get like distill like points of like what to you makes a really good story from a design perspective. And like, what do like, what three things does that look like? And then like, what, like, how did someone who does so many different things in, in their day, like, what does your, like, what, what does a day look like? like? What does a day look like? Not so much like, tell me about your day. Sure. But more like, how do you take someone who can do music and design and all these other things? And like, how do you manage to do all these different projects and prioritize what it I is? I like all those questions. Yeah. Um, okay. I can, I can tee up, I guess. you can do that almost in a quick, like, game-like fashion. Yeah. I think it's rap, cool rapid fire. Rapid. All right, cool. Um, so... John, JV, Mr. Romatus, we have to wrap up here, but I want to do a little bit of a rapid fire, just kind of Q&A here. Um, you have so much wisdom and experience and just legendary things that you've done. I want to try to pull some very actual things out for the audience. So I would say the first one is um, for people who are aspiring to get into fashion or creative, what are some of the key things that are non-negotiable when you're starting a brand or starting a new music career, starting anything in the creative field? What are some non-negotiables for you that have stuck with you across every domain you've pursued? Passion, for sure. You have to be passionate about what you're working on. Um, If it's your own brand, you have to really work on creating your own DNA. The lasting part of it If you're only for the moment, for the quick win, you can steal ideas, you can do another version of a build a better mousetrap kind of thing. But if you want a brand that lives on, you have to create your own DNA and have your own ethos and voice. Um, And a team. You know, building a team around you that you all hold hands to the finish line together and you you all share in both the successes and failures but learn from those failures that you have to make the successes even bigger and bolder. Wow. Um, Next question. You've had throughout your career a number of people who've bet on you and given you a shot. Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, the gentleman who bet on you for your own brand, OTD, all these things. What do you look for when you want to bet on someone and mentor someone and coach someone? What makes you excited to take a chance on someone? That's a great question. You know, it's... Part of it is it's not always how someone presents themselves personally because I sometimes meet with someone and they're quite nervous. So you have to kind of take a step back and say, like, if they're shy, that type of thing. It's really what they present to you and how they articulate. And it could be just by visually how they articulate because they may not be able to articulate it verbally because either a language barrier because I interview people from all over the world or because they're nervous again. And and I find that happen quite often, but they're able through stories in their, in their, in, 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 in their presentation to get you to buy into just like me wanting a consumer to buy into what I do. The storytelling is so important because it has to hit a chord with someone. It has to be memorable with somebody. I love when 
I, when I interview someone and I love their story or the presentation that they have, and one of those people is with me 20-something years now, and I still love telling that story about that initial meeting, them dropping the book off of that they designed, the, and then them meeting with me and being so nervous, but us, I, us, me helping them walk them through them, and me leaving with this thought that this person has so much more than even there because of how they are even being nervous or even being just in a few pages of sketches, able to articulate their vision and their story. Um, and I think that, you know, whether you read a book or you're designing a car or you're designing clothes, whatever it is, storytelling is the thing that stays with people for so long. And I love when I go out and do a personal appearance and I meet, or, or I just meet somebody on a plane and they introduce themselves to me and they tell you a story about this jacket that they bought in 2005 and the pocket and the way the, the leather was done. And, and, and part of it, that story might have evolved over time, but I, you know, through them or through other people. But I love that that story was so meaningful to them on this just piece of clothing that they never let it go. And for me, that's how I look at people that I hire, too, that there's something about their connectivity, and they're able to articulate that way, and sometimes it's not even verbally. Wow. Uh, I guess we'll end on this one, and it's a little bit of a parlay from what you just said, but in the Uncharted community, in the Advertising Week audience, and a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, they're going to be captains of industry titans, entrepreneurs building their own business. I think the opportunity to hear a piece of advice from someone who's been so um, prolific as a creative across multiple domains and has just managed to cut through the noise so many different times in music and fashion and your own brands and Converse and Chrysler, what's one piece of advice that you'd leave um, the uncharted community, the advertising community, advertising we community with around how they should be thinking about how do they cut through the noise? It's a big question, but I think it's kind of like relentless execution. It is like never being totally satisfied. Doesn't mean that you can't deliver it, but never really being totally satisfied where you're at. Like that execution needs to be relentless, and you need to be thinking about that there's somebody else that's doing something, you know, in the world today, it doesn't matter what you do, there's so many other people. So what what makes you stand out? What makes your product stand out? What makes your story stand out? You know, all of those things. And it's not one, I look at it as a car engine with like eight or 12 cylinders. And you need to make sure that all of those cylinders are pumping all at the same time smoothly. Because if you have a couple that are really strong, but a couple that are really noisy and, and, and really bringing the rest of the, the vehicle down or, the, or your engine down, you're not going to win the race. You're not going to be at the top of the heap. Mm. Sage advice. We didn't even get to talk about your tequila, which is my world, the booze industry. But very quickly, <laughs> you and Nick Jonas started a tequila. Tell us what it's called. Tell us how we could support it. And then tell us how else we, we could support the various ventures of John Barbados. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Villa One Tequila. I met Nick Jonas. Completely different demo than me, like half my age. Um, seven years ago at a dinner. 
kind of like an uncharted dinner to some degree of creatives and interesting people that they brought together. Um, Rock Nation, who I'm sure, sure. you've heard of, brought together like 20 or 30 people. They sat me next to Nick Jonas. We got into a conversation that lasted for like three hours wow. about life and music and family and our passions and where we want to go with things. And during that time, we were drinking tequila. And we started talking about tequila. And I found out he was a type 1 diabetic. And that was the one thing that he could really drink that didn't have sugar and that type of thing. So we, we kind of built our friendship over that. And every time we were together, we drank tequila. And we did other things together. We did some other collaborations in my fashion world together. And then one day he called me and said, it's time we do the tequila. Let's do it. And I, I was someplace in Europe when he called me. And I'm like, I'm ready. To, let's go. And wow. so the vision there again was how do we how do we not just put our name on it how do we do something best in class so it's called villa one and it's our partners is stoli group and we our goal with them is that we don't want it to be a celebrity for a celebrity um tequila or spirit we want it to be a best in class so if you're going to spend $45 to $60 on a bottle of te te tequila. We want to be best in class, and that they usually call that category alter premium. There's no reason we can't find a way to do that, to rise above the mire and all of that, that when people drink it or sip the first test, that the response isn't, oh, that's good. It's wow. How do we get the wow factor? And so we worked with a master distiller down in Jalisco, Mexico that we love, Arturo Fuentes, who they consider the godfather of tequila down there. And he fell in love with our vision, and he helped create Villa One Tequila. Amazing. Um, it's an exciting category. I don't know if you know this, but my fund invests explicitly in the booze industry, so I know it very, very well. Villa One's fantastic. Stoli's fantastic. So congratulations. If you're listening, go try Villa One. Take a break from whatever other tequila you're drinking and support our guy here. Thank um, you. You're amazing. I'm very grateful that you've come to a few Uncharted events and that we've become friends. It's an honor to know you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for uh, the mark you've left on the fashion world. And anything else you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I just have to say the whole Uncharted thing for me is a little mind-blowing. When I went to the um, event out at Michael's house in the Hamptons last August. Right? Last July. Or last June, June. Last June, yeah. Last June. Um, I was just taken back, number by, by, by the sheer magnitude of the event, meaning the amount of people that were not just hanger-oners, but people there that were there for all the right reasons to listen, to speak, to learn, to um, intermingle with each other, to walk away with something, even if it was, hey, I made a great friend, this is cool, and you know, like our relationship already, I feel the same way with you, super warmth and everybody that I've met. And I get so many texts and things from people that I met in the group. And I find like it's a unique experience. It's 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 like nothing other that I know, because you for me, usually people that are in that world are too into their own shit and not into like everybody you know looking at looking at the rest of the world in a broader way mm. and and i do i believe that people are very micro in in people the investors are very micro generally the ones that i see um and this is kind of like a free form 
thinking think tank. It's like a big think tank. Even the dinner that we were at not too long ago, I love that it really had nothing to do that I thought anything we were going to talk about. And it was kind of mind-blowing. And the different people that were there, you want to talk about for the next two weeks, like I met her and him and this and that. And and they all left you with some kind of mark. So thank you for inviting me and letting me be part of it. Well, it means the world to hear you say that. The The whole intent of Uncharted is to take people who are the best in the world at what they do in their field and put them together. Um, and most importantly, give them a safe and authentic space to connect and meet each other and have real dialogues that, if we're lucky, can move the world forward. And if we're even luckier, can create friendships like this. So thanks for doing this. It's uh, much more to come. And uh, I appreciate you. I have to say one more thing. How articulate are you? I mean, <laughs> seriously. Credit to my father. Seriously, unbelievable. Every time you get up and speak, and you kind of lead the groups usually when you're together, yeah. and you're a super young guy, and you are so articulate, it is amazing. I think I'm going to retire after that compliment from John Barbados. <laughs> One last thing, credit to Lottie Oakley for bringing us together. We really appreciate Lottie. This is a fantastic uh, Another special person. She's the most special, so yes. thank you, Lottie. Thank you, Lottie. Cool. We love you. Thanks, JV. Okay, thank you. Thank you.